seconds flat. Give me up. This is the Seconds Flat Running Podcast. He's been broken three times. He refuses to give in. He might do it. Look at that guy. Look at Black Zero. Oh, my God. Hi, everyone, and welcome in for mile 135 of the Seconds Flat Running Podcast. It is race week phil how we doing buddy oh it's the traveling podcast show man we are doing good from different parts of the country we will reunite again on the west coast this weekend the meat and potatoes of this episode will be a preview of the upcoming california international marathon and the accompanying u.s marathon championships of which phil is a heavy favorite but first you know, I, I went through the start list. They didn't have me on there for the <laughs> Uh Yeah, late edition. Late edition. Okay, okay. First, before we dive into that, we have some important housekeeping items, Phil. The first one is, what a sizzling fast race last weekend at the Manchester Road Race. That, what a turkey trot. That is the granddaddy of all turkey trots. A uh, 4.75-ish mile road race uh, through the streets of Manchester, Connecticut. It was won by Connor Mance and Wayne Kalati. Six weeks off of uh, his debut at Chicago. What a fall he has had. Yeah, he said in a, in a pre-race interview that I thought was really funny, he made a comment that he, he had come back a little too soon, workouts were up and down, <laughs> and then he went out and broke Ed Cheserick's course record with a time of 21 minutes and four seconds, and four other men also dipped under the previous course record. The runner-up was our guest in mile 109, Morgan Beetlescombe, who outkicked Wesley Kiptu and Andrew Colley down the stretch to finish one second behind Mance. They were kicking hard coming down that last, what, three quarters of a mile or so. Yeah, great uh, sprint finish on Main Street. There's footage of that available from the Hartford Current on Twitter and also on YouTube if you haven't seen the race. Meanwhile, in the women's race, uh, Kalati earned a commanding victory by more than a minute over Jessa Hansen and former Arkansas star Taylor Werner. There's been a few years where that race has just been freezing cold, and they had really good conditions, upper 30s, a pretty calm winds. Guys ran fast. Great race in Manchester. We'll be there next, next year. Well, you know, Phil, I was thinking about it. We've had the discussion before of, of some destination races that I've been interested in at off distances. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, I love Not Gate River eight, Run. Yeah. Yes, I love Gate River Run at 15K. The 12K at Bloomsday was awesome. The Not Quite 8K <laughs> a turkey trot in Manchester should be on our list, man. Next, we haven't recorded since the NCAA Cross Country Championships. Oh, what a race incredible race the division one team winners were the favorite north carolina state women and in the men's competition the northern arizona dynasty lives on as they beat oklahoma state 
on a the grand total of four tenths of a second. <laughs> yes, on the Cowboys home course, they went in a tiebreaker. Phil, do you care to weigh in on the tiebreak format? I do. I have some strong opinions on this with no skin in the game of what actually matters. <laughs> so, I always consider high school or not high school, but cross country a the most democratic sport. That you know your points in terms of your placing is goes to your team, but that also the, the sixth and the seventh man are supposed to count for something. Hmm. But as it comes down to this tiebreaker, the sixth and the seventh man weren't even really a consideration. It all came down to, and you can explain, you know, how they did the the tiebreaker in general. But I was, and I realize this is the rule, but I, I was disappointed that they decided to, well, not they decided, but the rule does not incorporate the placing of the sixth man in that tiebreaker outcome. Yeah, you mentioned slip of the tongue there. You said high school a moment yeah. ago. And I assume, Phil, that's because in high school competition in every state that I'm familiar yeah. with, the sixth man or woman is the tiebreaker. So yeah. it, in case the, the runners who are scored uh, number one through five for each team, for those of you who are not familiar with the cross-country scoring format, those numbers are then added up one through five for Northern Arizona and Oklahoma State finished in a tie under the commonly used format, the one that Phil prefers, and I will agree with, I would also prefer this as well, that the sixth runner then is the tiebreaker. So the number of points scored by the sixth runner determines which team wins. One drawback of that format in high school racing is particularly at smaller schools, fielding a deep team is a big challenge. Right. And so it can penalize the team that has, maybe there's only 20 or 30 kids even in the high school. And so <laughs> they're lucky just to get five kids on the line. So that could be a reservation. The NCA format takes head to head of each person, one through five, and scores them directly against each other. So Northern Arizona's first, how did that person come in versus Oklahoma State's first? In that situation, Northern Arizona's first person was in before Oklahoma State's. So they win that number. And then it trickles down one, two, three, four, five, and they compare them head to head. You said, I uh, think, 0.4 uh, seconds separating. If you go back and look at the video, that, that Oklahoma State had two runners that, if they had been two tenths of a second faster each, would have moved up a placing. And would have broken the tiebreaker. Yeah, you're right. It, it would have swung the tiebreak in their direction. The other video that's really cool is to see Northern Arizona's Brody Hasty charging to the finish line and claiming places at the very last second. So, you know, it's it's fair. It was known beforehand how this right. would be determined. Uh, Oklahoma State closed so well and so hard moving up at each of the timing mats. Well, because they, they weren't even really close to being in contention to begin with, but as the race developed, they moved further and further up. You saw them climbing up the leaderboard. Yeah, you're right. And they made for a heck of a finish when after the race was over, we're watching on ESPN and the scores swinging back and forth, and we uh -huh. don't know who has won. Northern Arizona gets another title under legendary coach Mike Smith. Your individual champs were Caitlin Tui of North Carolina State, who ran down Florida's Parker Valby with a oh, massive... Right. Had running down Parker. Yes, that final kilometer push. 
Uh, and then shortly after the race, she signed a major NIL deal with Adidas. So it's, in my opinion, good to see that translating to our sport because we think of it as a basketball football concept. I love that NIL deal that Caitlin signed in terms of her being able to monetize her success immediately. And stay at the program she's in, which is already an Adidas program. She's comfortable with the brand. She's comfortable with their training. She gets to continue to go to school. And you're right. She can translate her success, uh, most likely in uh, a marketing format. I'm going to guess she has a big following on social media that she can parlay this success and sell the Adidas brand to those followers. And then it was Stanford's Charles Hicks on the men's side. Stanford was overall a team disappointment at the NCAA championships, but Charles Hicks gets the individual title for Stanford. So let, let's go back to the to the women's race for a second, because I think I'm sure you, you read the commentary with, with Parker Volby and her approach to the course mm-hmm. um, in regards to her running tangents, which was one thing that that I guess frustrated me as an outsider that somebody running at that level still doesn't understand how to approach that course as efficiently as possible. And some interviews afterwards and watching the race, if you watched her going around the course, she gets up to what, an 11 second lead or so? Yes. But as she approaches some of the corners, she is taking them very, very wide and not taking the most efficient route around the course, which is almost, I mean, not to criticize somebody that, of course, is much more talented than I am, but seems like well, well hold, hold on, hold on, Phil. You criticize me all the time. Well, that's true, but and, we'll and see f- what happens in our showdown on Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I understand your position, and, and there was a lot made of uh, those comments, and a couple points here. One, yes, the, the course is made measured on tangents. So the most of the runners at any course, and this is true, like for you and I headed to a marathon this weekend, yeah. most, most marathoners finish a race having run more than the prescribed 26.2 mile distance. It's an interesting situation for Parker Valby in that she was alone, so alone for so mm-hmm. much of the race and has so little experience being that alone at the front of a pack in a race like this. And so from from that perspective, I thought the criticism maybe was a bit harsh. Uh, I think she was pretty locked in on running her race and and probably really focused internally on trying to gap the competition, how she felt early on, taking advantage of the undulations in that course, which are significant. Mm -hmm. There's no question she could have run a little bit faster had she taken the tangents. But I'll add this. I don't think she finishes any better than second, regardless. He's still going to run her down. That's exactly right. And so in the end, it's a great learning opportunity for for Parker Valby to be better next time because of this. And the attention that it gained. And she's got a great coach in Chris Selinski. I oh, am absolutely. 100% certain he uh, had already addressed this topic yeah. with, with her. But I don't think she wins regardless. And so now it's an opportunity to take a second place finish and to learn from it and to be better at the next race. So yeah. perhaps in that sense, it's, it's the best of both worlds for her to know she could have run better uh, but to have challenged a generational talent in Caitlin Tui. True. Okay, Phil, let's get to the main event. Oh, that's what the people have been waiting on. This Sunday, 
7 a.m. Pacific, starting in Folsom and traveling to the California State House in Sacramento. It is the California International Marathon. Again, this year, CIM hosts the U.S. Marathon Championships. Before we break down the course and the elite field, the seconds flat showdown. Let's finalize our head-to-head bet here, Phil. Okay. How much cushion do I need to give you? I'm willing to offer you 26 minutes. That's a minute per mile. Ooh. Will you take it? Or are you so soft that you want more? (laughs) (laughs) Give me 31 minutes. 31 minutes? (laughs) Holy cow. This is like a a one minute per mile in a 50K. (laughs) Okay, 31 minutes. Mm. Okay, so how about we do this, Phil? Okay. Let's just split it right down the middle. 28 and a half minutes. Done. Done. Will you accept? I'll, we'll take it. Okay. 28 and a half minutes. <sighs> Boy, that's a lot of time for me. I better run fast, Phil. Moving, man. Oh, gosh. This I'm is a lot of be jogging along. This is a lot of pressure. <laughs> oh, what have I done? Okay. We'll see. There it is. You heard it there. 28 and a half minutes. Let's get into the race. CIM. Traditionally, competitors go to CIM to run under fast conditions. Maybe my biggest point, my, my caveat of fast course at CIM is, yes, it is a net downhill, but it's a net downhill in the Boston sense. This is not running a gradual downhill for 20 miles. It's a lot of rollers in the first half with each uphill giving you back slightly more on the downhill than it took. Then it's a flat finish. The variables that really make this fast are the depth of the field for certain, and that gets heightened in a U.S. champs year. Mm -hmm. Uh, The excellent race organization, very few turns on the course. And those are things that Boston also has. But what Boston doesn't have is typically historically ideal weather That's a major separator for CIM. And then the second is the placement of the hills within the course. At Boston, those are true hills. Mm -hmm. And the biggest uphills hit you when you are fatigued. At CIM, unless you're from a pancake flat part of the country, these are more rollers than they are hills. Where you train every day, Phil, these these are very gentle. No, I'm... I'm because I've done flat races before, and to me, they are challenging because you just get set in that one gear. That That's right. Hold that for the whole race. Whereas this, changing gears every now and then, having a little bit of momentum to carry you downhill, but also shifting gears every now and then to, to climb up a slow ascent. I, I'm excited about the potential for this. Yeah, so you added the next key point into why this can be fast the different muscles recruited throughout this course. We'll come back to it when we get into a course strategy segment here later on. That's a big part of what sets us up to run fast in a different way than say a Chicago can set up to run fast. This fall at Chicago in October, you had great weather conditions. It's had a lot of hot years at Chicago recently. And so you haven't had optimal conditions. Well, and occasionally you have the wind at Chicago too. 
the factors played in this year for it to be fast uh, because there's no big climbs and combined with the weather. But as you said, largely same muscles for 26 miles. And so that's an advantage you have at CIM. Uh, let's dissect some of these factors filled in in greater detail. So in, in sum, you'll drop about 340 feet in elevation over the entirety of the course. However, this comes with significantly more climbing, again, the vast majority of that being quite gentle, than most other marathons known for super fast courses. I'll touch in a minute on the course speed rating here to break mm -hmm. that down more. Very significantly, the sharpest downhill comes in the first mile with a 50-foot-plus 50 50 uh, decline on Auburn Folsom Road. So you're coming down from the reservoir toward the city of Folsom, away from Auburn. Then you'll take a right turn with a slight uphill to hit the mile marker on Oak Avenue. So big downhill right off the bat, not as steep as the Boston start downhill, but that anyone who's been on that starting line on Hopkinton with the energy and excitement and a downhill first mile, that can be a place where you can take advantage of it, or you can make a really serious mistake that bites you later on. After that right turn, you'll ride Oak Avenue to past the five mile mark in the town of Citrus Heights. It's a left turn there onto Fair Oaks Boulevard. You will spend uh, well over 15 miles on Fair Oaks Boulevard. It has a couple bends. One is at the town of Fair Oaks around mile 10. One is just beyond the halfway marker. But Fair Oaks Boulevard is going to take you all the way into the city of Sacramento. And so when you're looking at 15 plus miles with really only a couple jogs in the course, that's part of what sets this race up as a potential PR course. You don't have to worry about tangents. Not a ton. That is, that is right. There's, there's a lot of straight lines, Phil. Yes. In the closing miles, the race follows the city street grid, and it is virtually pancake flat for the final few miles with a sharp left turn back toward the California State House for the final 200-ish meters of the race. Uh, so if you believe in the findmymarathon.com course rankings, CIM scores a 100.38. Nice. Okay, so to translate that, that's a fairly high number. It means that the course elevation profile yields this as the 32nd fastest certified course in the United States. You have to remember a handful, probably a dozen of those courses above it come from the real severe downhill, like the Revel Race series, mm -hmm. which are almost irrelevant for this ranking. We can remove those. Because well, uh, those have rankings of like 105% or yes, you know, the downhill is basically giving you five to eight minutes worth of speed that your fitness may not have. It might be beating the heck out of your quads and you'll feel it the next day, but the, it's a significant aid. Yeah. Um, it, it would also, you would have above it, a course like St. George, a beautiful course that I ran a few years ago. Uh, St. George has a significant downhill uh, late in the race. Now it also has a very big climb that is often overlooked early on somewhere around like maybe mile seven or eight, but it's a net much bigger downhill than CIM. The lack of turns then combined with the typical weather 
think actually makes that maybe faster than 32nd on the ranking. Because remember, those, those course rankings that they're using are considering the elevation profile, and then they'll build in the weather for that particular year into how it's scored. So it's We're- probably consistently faster year over year versus uh, Chicago, which is going to be fast, but you could hit a hot year or something that might slow you down. Yeah, that's spot on, Phil. Uh, I, a lot of people that I know who have raced both of these, I have not raced Chicago. I do have CIM experience, and we'll talk more about strategy based on my experience and the athletes that we've worked with there. Those who have run both Chicago and CIM will tell you on a good year, Chicago might be faster mm-hmm. just overall as a course, but it's just so much more hit or miss when this is regularly good weather. We're recording this four plus days out from the race. As of now, the forecast calls for race temps in the low to mid 40s with a 40 to 50% chance of sprinkles or showers during the race. That's less than it was a couple days ago. Yeah, so the winds look to be a cross breeze for most of the course. It looks like more significant rain the day before. Mm-hmm. Uh, Phil, how are you feeling about the forecast? I'm, I'm comfortable with it because with those temps, that's perfect. Yep. And even if it's a little bit rainy out there, that's not going to be uncomfortably cold. Mm-hmm. And really, as I look at over the past fall, you know, looking at long runs and what weather is going to be on a Saturday or Sunday heading out, you know, if I see the night before that uh, there's going to be a 40% chance of light drizzle, that's probably going to be a pretty good run because, you know, it may be a little bit wet, but it's not going to be a downpour and it may not even be for the whole time. So, you know, a little yeah. light drizzle during a run, I'm okay with that. Yeah, not a big deal. I think it's fairly close to ideal if this yeah. forecast holds. I, I love the temperatures. You know, you mentioned running a downpour and this past Sunday for my last tune-up workout, I mean, it was a thunderstorm, about 50 degrees in a thunderstorm. Yeah. So well, uh, that's why I'm giving you 28 and a half minutes because this past Sunday I was supposed to go run and hit the snooze button and wait until the middle afternoon to yep. get out in some nicer weather. Just once again, proved how soft you are, Phil. Wow, that's okay. (laughs) Uh, So, yeah, I I do think it's fairly close to ideal. And if you look at the marathon score, you can find my marathon includes forecast for CIM. It does this with a lot of the bigger races in the final week, and it'll update them throughout the week. Uh, I think it's maybe once or twice a day. Currently, when you look at the course score for this year, they rate it at dead on their 100.38 rating. Nice. So they, they are considering this an average year, nice. which an average year there is normally good. I'll take it. We'll take it. Uh, the depth of competition certainly also helps make CIM such a fast race. So Phil, let's take a look at that elite field before we do. The course records are 21027 from the great Jerry Lawson. That one's held up for a while. That's, I think that's about 30 years old now. Wow. And legendary Jerry Lawson. That was a guy running in a true flat too. So no super, that, shoes. No super shoes for Jerry. And then a 226.53 by Sarah Vaughn. That was just last year, mm-hmm. actually her debut as she moved up from the track. Those records could be in a bit of jeopardy as the fastest mark in the field belongs to Noah Drotti, who ran 209.09 at the Marathon Project two years ago. Two years ago, yeah. That's right. Uh, also a winter race in Arizona. 
And defending men's champ, Brendan Gregg, who ran 211 last year. He's local in Sacramento. He will also be there. Men or women, any names sticking out to you, Phil? Really, as I looked at the, the start list later or earlier this afternoon, Noah Drotti was the big one that stood out to me, mm-hmm. um, which was kind of disappointing with this being a U.S. Marathon Championship and with it having some decent prize money of $20,000 for the winner and $10,000 for second. I believe it's um, 30, Phil. I'll have to double check that, but I thought I saw 20. Well, I got to figure out how much money I'm going to win here, Phil. <laughs> I could be wrong. Let me let me check on that while you're while we go ahead. So you said Noah Drotti, anyone else? No, he's my favorite. And really, beyond that, I have no idea. And that's what I hate about some of these marathon championships is that we don't see the huge depth of field from the Americans like we would at, say, Chicago or New York. Of course, they're probably also not getting the appearance money to come race at an event like this. So two things. First, you were right on the 20000 I got confused, Phil. There is a $3,000 course record bonus. That's where I got the three in my mind from. So you're correct. $20,000 well, first. $3,000. Yeah. I mean, that, that's just pennies to us, right? I, you know, <laughs> the money we make from this thing. Uh, so right. $20,000, then $10,000 for second, seven for third. As you said, on down, it's going to pay out to the top 10. It's a $3,000 bonus uh, that only if more than one person breaks the course record, it'll only go to the winner. And then this, the second piece, Phil, is when you talked about the depth of the race, you, of course, have the other fall marathons. You add in that London was bumped to the fall this year. Right. So there's probably one or two people we lost there. And then you have a big piece happening this weekend as well. Actually, Thursday, the World Cross Country Tour, the build up uh-huh. to the World, World Cross Country Championships, which are coming soon, is in Austin, Texas. And this is a team cross country event. It's, it's a brilliant event. I'm super excited for it. What poor timing, though? Well, for, for this race field, it is poor timing. Right. For cross country in Austin, Texas, it's probably great timing. Right. And some of the uh, big teams are there. Great runners. I know on will be there. The, the 10 man team is there. Some of the roots team will be there. Yeah. Like Frank Hansen's going to have uh, Brooks Hansen's is going to have runners there. It, it's super deep. Uh, a, right. a bunch of people who we've had on this show before and a bunch of the top runners in the world, international stars will be there. So that probably also thins out what we would see previous years at CIM for a U.S. championship. It was a little deeper than it will be this year, but I can promise this to everyone out there who's not on that elite field, but maybe you're sub elite or maybe you're trying to qualify for Boston. There's going to be a ton of people around you. You're Mm -hmm. still going to have a deep field that you can work with. I really want to dig deep and make a wild prediction like my uh, Daniel Donashimento pick at New York. Oh, you were so close on that one. Oh, it looked so good for 20 miles. And then next thing you knew, he was laying on the side of the road, probably in a pile of his own feces. But what a pick that was. Um, (laughs) But I do like one of the top seeds in the women's race. That's Paige Stoner. She has Ooh, a two, okay. Okay, 228 PB, had a great NCAA career. Uh, men's side friend of the show, Ryan Root, is in that men's field. I'd love to see him have a big one. Uh, Josh Thompson is an interesting name to me as well. We'll see. He was second at Indy in the half uh, in November. 
And I'd love to see the te- uh, Team Minnesota guys have a big day. Big fan of those oh, cats. Yeah. Maybe Kevin Lewis or Joel Reichow pops a big one. So I'm uh, looking out for them as uh, maybe a slightly more off the radar. Okay, Phil, let's go to the strategy. Let's break down what this is going to look like. And so this is an overarching strategic approach for everyone to kind of understand and chunk the course. We'll probably touch some specifics, though, for you in particular, Phil, with your first time out there. Uh, So this is based on my experience there experience of friends, fellow runners, and athletes, the number of athletes who love this race, taking that collective wisdom and hoping to lay out a a very effective yet simple strategy for this race. I'll start here with the basics. One, this is a course that sets up well for a slight negative split. Maybe you're more aggressive Uh, depending uh, on how you like to race, but particularly if you're not as confident in a specific number, uh, I think a slight negative split is appropriate here. More significantly though, this is a rhythm and effort course, more than one where we are trying to hit specific splits. Let it flow up and down these rollers with a focus on just maintaining that marathon rhythm and effort and allow yourself to fall within a pace band or range. So for example, if you're a three-ish hour marathoner, and so Phil, this works for you. You're somewhere in that range to slightly uh, above that range. Hypothetically, we have someone who's a, a seven minute per mile runner. You won't see exactly seven minutes on your watch very often. Don't expect to and don't try to, and that's okay. And more importantly, don't get caught up in checking your watch a bunch. You might have a 655, then a 705, then a 650 for a runner who has a goal of seven minutes per mile, and that's okay. That's a good point because actually I was fiddling with my watch earlier this week to make sure things were set. And, you know, I've I've been training with the auto app off just because on a day to day, basis it's a pretty useless metric but as i was thinking about pacing and setting up for this race i was thinking that that would be helpful to every mile just you know have the clicker like here's what i hit here's where i'm at adjust from there but you saying that makes me think i need to turn that auto auto lap off okay great point let's dive into that quickly phil Uh, i will have auto lap off i will have uh I I most likely will have two screens that scroll on my watch. The first will be total time and probably split with total distance on it will be the two on the screen. And then I'll have it on like a medium pace scroll. So, you know, it changes every maybe three to five seconds. I'm not going to be looking at it much, but it's quick enough that when I do look down, I can catch both of these screens. That second screen will be lap numbers. So it will be lap distance, lap time, and average pace. I don't want to see current moving pace because I don't think it's going to be very valuable. And given how much up and down I have early on, I'm not sure how accurate it'll be over the course of those rollers. And when I say that second screen will be lap numbers, I will be splitting my watch probably at big round chunks. Haven't made the final call on this yet, whether it'll be kilometers. They do have markers at every 5K where the elite uh, aid stations are. 
So it's possible I click my watch every 10K and just do four clicks and only look at the watch four times, essentially. Uh, I may also do five miles. And when we get into the segments of the race of 5, 10, 15, 20, 25, it may work out fairly well with how the course lays out. In my previous experience there, I clicked it every 5K and I just like to worry about it less than that. That's not a ton. That's only eight times looking at your watch over the course of the race. I had a really round number though that year, like a 5K worked out to a round number for me. So that's something to think about too. You know, let's go back to our hypothetical seven minute per mile person. Clicking it every five miles could make sense because you know, I'm going to get to five miles around 35 minutes and 10 miles around 110, it doesn't matter so much how I got there, assuming I didn't go like 615 and then 745. That's Mm -hmm. probably going to be too much of a swing. If I want to get to, you know, the first five miles might be a a little slower, but I can still use 35 as my guidance because I'm going to get out a little conservative. So maybe I'm at 35X, you know, or 36 minutes through five miles it's a good place to check and just know if you're on the right trajectory. So I haven't made the decision here, but given the layout of the course, the topography of the course, I do think it's best to use a more intermittent approach to splitting the watch manually at their mile markers rather than any mark on my watch and using a place that's round number focused so that we aren't trying to do that foggy mental marathon math. That's higher level calculus there. Yeah, it's it's a waste of our time, right? If you're a six minute per mile person, if that's your goal, that which would be a two thirty seven marathon, you know, at an hour, ten miles, two hours, twenty miles, those are nice round numbers that you can work with easily. So, for each runner, figure out what those might look like, what your estimated goal paces could be. And then you can apply that to when you should click your watch throughout these segments that we'll lay out now. Does that make sense, Phil? No, that's great advice. Cool. I recommend breaking the course into several chunks. And these are also the places where I might check in on the total pace. If again, that's something you'd like to do and you're splitting your watch manually. Section one, short, sweet, simple, the first mile. I like a time check after the first mile just to make sure you aren't getting out too fast with that downhill. So even if I'm on a five mile plan of splitting my watch or whatever that number ends up being for each individual, I'm going to at least look at it at the first mile mark. That's going to be the first point I look at it. And I just want to make sure I'm not getting out too fast. I recommend somewhere around 15 to 20 seconds slower than marathon effort. I did not say pace. We're emphasizing rhythm and effort. 15 to 20 seconds slower than marathon effort. That might be a bit quicker than 15 to 20 seconds slower than your goal pace given the downhill. So consider that accordingly. With that said, if you were 15 to 20 seconds slower than your goal pace, that would be absolutely fine. I would rather be there. And again, that would mean an even slower effort than faster than goal pace on this first mile, or or at least well faster than. We have a friend of a friend who was local in Sacramento and several years ago sent me a spreadsheet broken down by miles with his opinion of best prescribed pace per mile, which is way too specific for me. 
he assumed a, a, a faster first mile given how downhill it is, but that's looking more at like an even effort, even split kind of approach to the race. And I don't know that that's optimal. Make sure here that you are not running well faster than your goal of pace, especially if you have any uncertainty about your fitness or preparedness. That road on the first mile is wide. You're not going to fight with a bunch of people here. Of course, there are going to be people around you who try to sprint out and make moves. And of course, there will be a few people in front of you who have overestimated their ability level. But the corral system, even though self-seeded at CIM, is very, very effective. And they're going to have a lot of signs that's going to say, hey, you're sub three, you're here, you're sub 315, go here. They're going to break that down into very small chunks. So you get the opportunity to put yourself where you think you can go. But this is not a race where the walkers go up to the front line. So you're not going to do a ton of, of jostling for position. Don't waste the effort on it. It's a wide road. As soon as the race starts, you're going to have space. It's a right turn. Tangents. Here we go. So don't spend your time, if possible, all the way out on the far left of the road out on the berm trying to get around everyone, you're just adding more distance and effort to the course. So that's section one. Uh, section two is from there to about mile four or five. So it's another short stretch. The goal here is easing down toward your marathon rhythm. So we want to end this section at marathon effort, in marathon rhythm. This is an overall slight downhill segment. So again, you're running close to, if you are running close to goal pace, excuse me, it actually should require a bit less effort than that. Okay. So you're going to be from the start to about mile four or five, you're, you're going to have cut a, a really decent amount of the downhill. When we talk about 300 feet of net downhill over the course of this race, a quarter to a third of that happens in the first two sections that I've laid out here. So within those first five miles. Just beyond five, you will make a left-hand turn then. That's the turn onto Fair Oaks. Uh, so now we're in section three, and that is going to take me out to around mile 11. I pick that section, uh, or I pick that point as the end of the section because this will be a sequence of the, one of the largest downhills on the course that falls between mile 10 and 11, and it's sandwiched between two bigger uphills. And so what happens here is from somewhere between four and five, when you start this third section to around 11, you're going to end up at roughly the same elevation at the end of this segment as when you started it, but you've done a lot of rollers. This is all rollers through this section. It's up and down. You're going to get us at mile 10 in the town of Fair Oaks. You're going to have a little downhill coming into out of Fair Oaks. You'll bend to the right. And then there's a short uphill that is uh, perhaps a little steeper than some of the others. You cross a main intersection and then boom, just get this short little kicker. And then other than mile one, the biggest downhill of the race now occurs. And then you have to come up about half of that on the other side, out the other side of it. And my experience, if I can get through mile 11 feeling good, if I can come up with that uphill without trying to press it too much and just feeling natural, that's a sign to me that I'm ready to race for the rest of the course. Don't expend too much before this. Don't, again, don't fight the uphill and the downhill. Just let it roll. 
It's okay on an uphill stretch to be 10 seconds slow when on a downhill stretch to be 10 seconds fast. Just stay on marathon rhythm. Think about marathon effort and cadence. You can come out now at mile about 12, you're going into 12, into section four. It's still too early to make a big move, but is the point in the race where we start thinking about racing? Any questions so far, Phil? So that basically takes us through, I don't want to call it the warm up of the race, but mm. getting out smoothly, settling into the groove, getting through the rollers, and then kind of almost taking like a systems check there at mile 11. Of, yes. Did we manage that well? Is our energy good? And now let's kind of start to turn it down a little bit, settle into mentally racing now. Yeah, I think that's right. And a big piece of, of why I say that also is, is in what you presented there of some of the mental aspects Yeah, and just like a body scan, body check, as you said, because to me, section four now, bigger chunk is from somewhere in this 11 to 12 mile range through the bridge you're going to get at about 35K. It's somewhere in there. Okay? okay. So it's somewhere around mile 21 or so. You're ever so slightly downhill and the up uh, the ups turn into more into bumps until you get to that bridge. And it's not a big uphill on the bridge. Yeah. It's just the point at which you are in the race, you might feel it a bit more. This whole segment is truly an easier part of the course. You should get to this point, as I said previously, feeling fresh if you've executed well. And this goes back to our conversation about the muscle recruitment that we right. have through that first half. In this segment, you'll get to the halfway point, and right at the halfway point, you will make a, the, the road bends to the left. This is one of the few sharp turns. You're still on the same road, but you make a left turn. I, I find this section to get a bit more mentally challenging in some stretches, particularly the stretch right after halfway, because you have these long segments of like urban sprawl and strip malls that aren't much interest for the eyes. Uh, yeah. Early on, it's, it's almost rural in the setting. It, it's a little more tree-lined. You're in some neighborhoods. You get a small town at Fair Oaks that you go through. And of course, you're excited. It's early. We've settled in now in mile 13, 14, 15. And, you know, I'm looking at like an Albertson's grocery store and a car dealer <laughs> and, a, and a check cashing place. And, and the, the field has thinned. There is a chance here that you're no longer in a pack. Okay. It almost certainly does not mean that you won't be in one again, because there's most likely one just ahead that we can focus on catching later. And there's certainly people who have played this more cautious who are going to try to, to catch up to you as well. But that, that's why it, it maybe is a bit more challenging psychologically here. So keep yourself engaged. Okay. And one thing I'll do is just a simple form check, maybe at each mile marker in this stretch from like 14, 15, 16, 17. And also just a body scan here, just kind of relax starting at the head all the way down through the body and, and maybe take the first minute of each mile to do those things and keep myself relaxed and focused on that good form and rhythm. Again, the bridge, it isn't much of a downhill. It's the last uh, of the true ups on the course. 
if it's like previous years, there's always some gym or something there that they got loud music playing and they're like dancing on stationary bikes. It's a wild scene. I don't even know how to describe it. So like running by off rabbit CrossFit at five 30 in the morning. <laughs> yes, that's right. You'll, you'll, <laughs> you'll experience it uh, on Sunday morning and we can then compare notes. Yeah. Uh, but again, you'll just notice that bridge a little bit more at this point because of the stage in the marathon. And that takes us to section five. It is then four-ish miles of just running to the barn. This is well set up, again, to be that negative split course. And by this point, you're just racing. Find people to chase down, go fishing for them, reel in the next one and find another one. But don't press the gas too hard too soon here because you know four miles is a long way to press from, uh, depending on how fresh you are. Mm-hmm. But we're, we're gradually progressing. We're starting to, to crank it down. We're boiling the lobster, right, at this point where you're just turning up that heat ever so slightly that it doesn't we're notice. that much closer to the fire. Yes, that is exactly right. But as you get to downtown, you're going to start crossing the numbered streets. I was going to ask, where is it? Because I've read about the section of, with the numbered streets and the countdown to the finish. Is that like this final section five here? Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. And you have something like there, there is one turn here where you, you're running straight into downtown. You'll take a left and then a right to get onto a parallel street mm-hmm. as you go towards the state house. But over the course of that whole thing, once you're in the city, you have something around 40 uh, city blocks. I don't pay too much attention to that countdown. Okay. Uh, I just try to use the trick in my mind. I'll go back through a visualization, you know, the night before I like to go the night before I like to go from everything from when I wake up, get the clothes on all that kind of stuff to seeing the, the start line and, and the entire course and fill in our situation. We will drive the bulk of this course the day before. I recommend it to anyone who hasn't been there, but is going. The course video on the website is deceitful. You do not realize how much this rolls in the first half until you get on the course and see it for yourself. And it's just, it's the one big mistake you can make in underestimating that and getting out too hard because there are so many fruits on the back half of this course that you can claim if you run smart on the front half and just stay focused on rhythm and effort. Okay. Back to my original point though. Sorry for the tangent, Phil. In that visualization the night before, I'm going to assume that whatever those street numbers are, I have to do like twice as many of them as whatever those signs say, because I don't want those signs getting in my head of knowing like, oh, I'm ticking down blocks because at that point, I don't want to be focused on that. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. I don't even want to look at them, but if at some point you're going to glance and see one, right? And so when I do, I want it to be encouraging rather than discouraging and thinking, oh, I I have X number to go. This is way better. Yes, this is way better than what I thought because I don't actually have to do a hundred of these blocks or whatever it is. Okay. Okay. I'm simplifying there, but that is a tactic that I will use. I will not think about it on race day, but I'll have it just briefly in my head the night before. Again, remember that as you make that left turn, it's probably 200 meters to the finish line. And then another piece that I would confirm at the expo is is the aid station situation. They have a bunch of aid stations. I believe it's 17. It's very well done. But in previous years, those early aid stations were on both sides of the road. 
I might ask about that because if that's true again, don't weave from side to side in those early miles trying to get water where the crowd's thicker, you know? So you you might think it's easier to, to get over and get water. I would stay patient. If we have a, a water station coming on your side, just stay on the same side of the road. Don't waste the mileage. And you might see people going over. So what happens is at mile one, you turn right, but you'd want to stay on the left side of the road then on Oak until you get to the turn beyond the five mile mark onto Fair Oaks. There's no need to drift to the right side of the road for an aid station if ultimately one is coming shortly after on the left. Uh, So we'll double check on that and make sure, but that's something I recommend you being aware of. Anyone on the course, two other key points. This is the Mecca of porta potties. I hate seeing people in those lines a few minutes before the gun, but if you need to use a restroom at the last second, don't panic. You shouldn't have a big line here. They do that oh, better crazy. than, yeah, they, they, they do it better than anybody. Good news for Kyle too. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Special K will be happy to note that. That's for the big That's cat. Right. Likes his porta potties uh, or just going in the street, whatever he needs to That's do. That's right. I believe this might be uh, a bit graphic, but I believe when he and I went to this race previously at the finish line, or excuse me, at the start line, we were in the corral and I had to block the crowd as he knelt down and urinated into a water bottle. (laughs) Uh, I hope he didn't pass it to anyone. Uh, And then a last key point, uh, there is no race morning gear check at the start line. Take warm clothes because it's going to be, you know, cool and potentially rainy, but stuff that you can throw out. Make sure if you want to check gear, you do that the day before and they will have it for you at the finish line. So that's a change. I believe that may have changed last year. I can't remember. But in earlier years, there were vans at the start area and you could check gear there and they would drive it downtown. Uh, Now they're encouraging you to check it the day before. I believe if you go downtown and check it the day before, they give like a free pair of gloves or something to encourage you to do this. And then the stuff will be waiting there for you. Uh, This could be in part because I know in the past, when you finish relatively early, I've had the experience of my stuff's not there yet. And I'm waiting for it to show up. And you're just sitting there and and these kids who are doing a great job volunteering are running around looking for your bib number. In this case, you'll already have those items there. They have laid them out on the lawn inside a fenced area at the state house. But make sure you have stuff that you're okay with getting rid of at the start line to keep you warm. Okay. Phil, any last questions about no, CIM? I guess the one question I have, and I'm sure it's on the, the website, but talking about the aid stations, what, what are they having there? Yeah, great question. I can answer that for you. They will have water at those aid stations. The on-course hydration is noon hydration. It is not the like the noon drink mix that we are used to in the uh, little tablets. Right. This, this is the one that is formulated with carbs in it as well. Right. Okay. So it's not as high a carb content as like a Gatorade, but it does have carbs in it. And then there uh, will be at least one. Uh, I remember several more, but at least one station with actual fruit real food. And then um, there are four, I believe, tables that have gels on the course as well. Okay. As always, be comfortable with whatever you're going to consume on the course. Have a fueling plan laid out beforehand. 
Phil, you and I will talk that through. Uh, we'll recap this race and go through the nitty gritty of the details of what we did for that stuff to learn yeah. from for the future. But don't consume a bunch of the stuff on the course if you're completely unfamiliar with it and have never used it before. That could be an issue. I know what I'll do. I'll be that is exactly why the poor potties are there, but I will be using most likely just the water uh, because I'll take my own gel. I'm fairly comfortable with that noon uh, product that they use. Yeah. I have used it before, so if I need to. However, also know that for the masses, you know, the elites have bottle stations on this course. For the masses, nobody is really checking and going to DQ you if you get a bottle handoff. This course sets up well, given that it's a point-to-point. Fans, friends, family might only get to see you a couple times on the whole course. But the, the, there are a number of points early in the race where the, the crowd is not like super thick. It's well lined through the course, but it's not deep like a Boston crowd where you can't see somebody or somebody can't get right to the edge of the course. You could do a bottle handoff very easily on this course if you want to consume a, a liquid nutrition product different than what they provide for you on the course. Yeah. All right. It's showtime, Phil. I will see you in California and at this time in about three days. Have you packed yet? Of course not, Phil. We're men. <laughs> We're going to wait till the last minute. I still got to do laundry. <laughs> yeah, I know. But I, I do know what I'm racing in. I'm ready to roll. I'm so excited. Can't wait to see you out there. We'll have a, a group of us out there. And, oh, it's going to uh, be a blast. If you are running, please uh, email us, uh, secondsflatpodcast at gmail.com. Would love to follow up on any of the topics we talked about tonight if you have questions. Or if there's anybody who wants to meet up, even just for a shakeout the day before or at the start line uh, after. Yeah, yeah, we'd love that. So if, if anybody is headed out, uh, let us know and we'd love to link up. And then we look forward to seeing you next time right here on Seconds Flat when we recap. And also, I didn't have time tonight for my review of the soon to be released ASIC Super Blast that comes out on the 1st, which we are recording on November 29th tonight. So it's not technically out yet, but I've been running in it for a week plus. And I love it, so I can't wait to break that down. We'll do that next time as well. Everybody have a great week. Have a blast if you're racing this week in California. Phil, I'll see you soon, buddy. See you soon, man.